0: Good evening. Good evening. Thank you. (laughs) Um, Good evening. I'm Aileen Fitsky. I'm a second year MDiv who works with the Religious Literacy Project. And I'm here to welcome you tonight on behalf of Dr. Diane Moore, the Religious Literacy Project, the Harvard East Asian Institute, and Music Unites Us from Brandeis. Tonight we're presenting from India, the Rhythms of Life, a concert by two renowned musicians whose foundations are in the repertoire of the great Indian classical tradition of Raga. They are spending the week at Brandeis University as part of the residency program, Music Unites Us. The Brandeis program founder director, Professor Judith Eisenberg, will introduce the musicians and tell us more about what we'll be hearing this evening. Curating and speaking at the many events at Brandeis and at this evening's presentation is Professor Anne Monius. She is a professor of South Asian Religions here at Harvard Divinity School. So without further ado, here's Professor Judith Eisenberg. Thank you. Before I forget, I want to invite you to the
1: concert Saturday night at Brandeis. For students, it's $5. Uh, everyone else, $20. Um, which is so, such a steal, as you'll know after you hear these incredible musicians. So here's a little secret that I just found out today as they painted for a painting class, as they played for a painting class, that I'm probably not supposed to tell, but it's so much fun. So I asked them, so how, you know, how long have you guys played together? And they looked at each other, and they have never played together before today's painting class, and it was incredible. So a little bit about them. Sandeep, who I've known for, for about four or five years now and had the pleasure of playing with him in my quartet, the Lydian Quartet, twice Grammy-nominated uh, Sandeep Daz is considered one of the leading tabla players in the world today. Debuting at the age of uh, 15 with uh, Ravi Shankar, Sandeep started touring outside of India in 1990. Sandeep can easily be called a musician of the 21st century, having bridged the gap between the East and the West successfully. He's also a composer and a speaker. A little bit more, the proof of his exceptional collaborative abilities can be found that, in fact, that for the last 16 years now, he's been composing and playing with the legendary cellist Yo-Yo Ma and his Silk Road Ensemble, string quartets and orchestras like the New York Phil, the Chicago Symphony, and the Boston Symphony. That's just a few. He's played all over the world. In fact, it was really hard to figure out a week that he could be in Boston to do this. Interestingly, I just also was reading, and it was interesting in view of our conversation today about Ragmala and literature and poetry, a gold medalist in English literature. So I could, say, I could say much more about Sandeep besides that he's one of the nicest and wisest people I know. Rajib, I just met today, uh, an LA-based performance artist, composer, and educator, who combines tradition and experiment to create new forms, drawing from a deep grounding in Indian classical music to wide varieties in contemporary music, rock and jazz. So we talked about all the things he does, and I'm dying to ask him to come back to Brandeis and bring his rock band. Um, About Rajib, West France, says, a joyful sitar virtuoso, the Jimi Hendrix of his generation. And about Sandeep by Yo-Yo Ma, he is a creator of myths, a storyteller, one of the greatest artists I've ever met. So soon, you'll, we'll get to them. But before that, um, I think Anne's going to give us a little introduction. So thank you.
2: So thank you all for coming. You're in for a real treat having heard them play together in the painting class uh, this afternoon. Um, I'm just gonna offer a very few remarks given the educational mission of Music Unites Us. Uh, Since we're here in Andover Chapel, I'm gonna focus on the connection, the very deep connection uh, throughout Indian history between music and religious life. Um, for those of you, I have my, many of my Intro to Hinduism class students over here on the right. Um, we were just studying the Veda. For those of you who've ever looked at Hindu traditions academically or personally, um, you know that the idea of sound is sacred uh, from the Veda onward, uh, that, which the Veda itself is imagined as sound emanating from the universe, somewhere in the universe it has so much being, it is so ontologically rich that it is not transmitted to earth by hearers but actually by people known as rishis, which means those who see. Uh, It's sound that can actually be seen. Um, For Vedic language itself um, comes with a kind of musicality to it. Uh, The texts that have come down to us are annotated according to three pitches. So the Rig Veda, for example, opens with Agnimele Purohitam, porohitam, yagnasya devartvijam. I'm told I have a sing-songy girl voice by my pundit. I work with in India on other matters. Uh, but nonetheless, you can hear that there's a high, middle, and low pitch. Within the Vedic collection as well, there is a collection known as the Samaveda, which are sung to melodies. So we have this very, very rich sense of sound as being um, ontologically based. It's not ephemeral, it is not transient. The sounds of the Vedas do real work in the world. Um, In later Hindu uh, thought, we know um, if you go to a Hindu temple, for example, today, you see that gods have rich visual forms. They also have audible sonic forms. To invoke Shiva or Vishnu or the goddess through sound is to bring them physically present. Now, the first and the oldest theorization of music that we have from South Asia, perhaps dating from the 2nd or 3rd century, uh, is a text on dance drama. So think of a musical. Dance drama, it's post-Vedic, attributed to a human author known as Bharata, about whom, unfortunately, we know nothing. Now, although the traditions are of danced dramas, dramatic narratives, usually about boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl back, like love stories in most places, um, in the In Bharata's Natya Shastra, Bharata goes to great lengths to make sure that his reader understands the parallel between music as he theorizes it, dance as he theorizes it, the songs that the actors will sing, and the words that they will speak. The analogy is drawn consistently throughout all of Bharata's theorization to the Veda and to Vedic sacrificial ritual. So that, for example, he describes the stage as here on which the actors will um, dance and sing and perform the play, as designed exactly to mimic a Vedic ritual altar. Um, he describes the, so- the the sounds that they will, songs they'll sing, the notes that musicians will play, etc., as analogous to the precise ritual actions of the Veda. So the earliest theorization that we have of any kind of Indian music is analogous to, and deliberately so, the great scriptural corpus and the ritual performances and sounds that accompany it, known as the Veda. Now, Bharata, in this treatise, also says the first uh, things we have from South Asia about what it is to see this kind of, or listen to, hear, musical and acted performance. He likens the connoisseur in the audience, that would be all of you, the one who knows what they're looking at, who understands how the pieces of a dance drama fit together, he likens them to a great gourmand savoring a meal. So if I made you all a lasagna, you would know that there's a tomato sauce in there, and I could tell you how I made that. There is uh, there's pa- there's pasta, I could tell you how I made that, and cheese. But yet a real gourmand, if we're all going to be great connoisseurs of my lasagna, we're going to savor it and it's going to be greater than the sum of its parts. And that's exactly what the savoring that Bharata talks about um, is aimed at, it's a, that's the closest analogy he comes. Uh, to telling us what a savoring of a dance drama should be. He terms what you savor, a russa. Uh, Russa literally means something that flows, it can be used to describe the sap coming out of a tree, for example. But what he means is a russa is something that emerges from all of the moments of a performance, what the actors do, down to the smallest gesture, the words they say, the songs they sing, the instruments that are played, he likens all of that to altogether what they create is a russa and it is that russa to be savored. And the russas as he defines them, this is the earliest understanding we have of Rasa from India is that they are deeply based in human emotional experience. So if you see lovers on stage, you don't savor that particular moment of love. You savor something more abstract than that, something more universalized, something more generalizable. You savor the erotic. If you see something funny on stage, you don't savor that particular moment. You savor something that is at some remove from that, the comic. So he outlines eight russas in this order, the erotic, the comic, the furious, the pathos-evoking, the heroic, the wondrous, the disgusting, and the fearsome. And later theorists will add a ninth russa, the harmonious, the quiescent, or the serene. All of the, the savoring, now, even if it is something that generates the disgusting, all of the savoring is eminently pleasurable. And it is also clear that in the savoring of notes and drama and visual things going on on stage, that you also learn something from this. Bharata is very clear, as are all theorists who come after him, that the person who can savor the Rasa of any artistic performance of any kind must be ethically well-formed, must be knowledgeable, well-educated, but the greatest thing that they need is empathy. They need to be able to hear notes, they need to be able to see action on the stage, and they need to be able to empathize with it, to lose themselves in it, to savor it in an empathetic or sympathetic fashion. Now Bharata, in his chapter 29, establishes a systematic correlation between notes, what we would today call pitch, and rasa. And the key that links them, he calls ornamentation. Poets also call it that. We might today, in a musical context, talk about improvisation that you have basic structures, but then you improvise, you embellish, you make ornaments. He says this, for example, a song without an ornament will be like a night without the moon, a river without water, a creeper without a flower, worse yet, a woman without jewels. Now, the whole entire ensemble, whether it be a play on the stage, a painting, we were talking about in the class on painting this afternoon, or a a musical piece is the sort that you're going to be listening to in a few minutes is meant to evoke a dominant theme of rasa. While in a great work of art, every every rasa should be there to be savored, one should produce as dominant, one should savour the dominant rasa. The dominant theme in every note, every improvisation is meant to help generate this savouring of the connoisseur in the audience. Now, Bharata himself does not use or develop a theory of raga. That is something that will come later in the tradition um, as musical creativity and modes change. And particularly with uh, Muslim, uh, the, the influx of Muslim rule influenced by Persian culture, there will be the introduction of new fretted stringed instruments that will create new forms of the octave and new forms of tones and semitones and this is not, I'm not the person nor is this the context to discuss that in any great length. One thing I did also want to mention as well is the somewhat artificial nature of a timed concert. That is not the mode in which this kind of music is generally meant to be savored. Um, Typically uh, these were performed, these kinds of concerts were performed in the pre, in pre-modern period in two kinds of venues. Either in a temple courtyard, we know that much musical, many forms of music developed in India it, by setting the poetry of great poets and saints in the tradition to music, all of the great corpuses we have of devotional poetry are organized according to the melody, the melodic structure in which they're sung and played. That kind of performance you can still see regularly all over India today. It's heavily ritualized. Um, it's done before the deity in the temple to entertain him and to praise him and show love to him. The other context in which much of the music, uh, musical traditions of India developed no longer exists, and that is the royal court. And so until the mid-19th century, the Court, the royal court was the place where museum, mu- musicians met and performed, and they often performed all night, all day, all night. Um, I've been to many concerts in India where people come and they go and they mill around and they eat. People come and go off the stage, but the music goes on. So there's a somewhat shortened uh, mode here, largely developed during the period of British rule. British reaction to these all-night concerts whose musical notation they struggled to get down uh, is quite hilarious to read. Widener has a wonderful collection of that material. Um, but this, this element here of a kind of a secular stage was really developed only in the early 20th century. Um, after the British began to introduce new forms of secular public space. Um, So one of the things uh, to think about, I think, despite all of these changes in venue and the fact that we don't have any either great Hindu religious material or a court here to inspire us is that what has remained very, very consistent throughout the history of Indian music and art theory has been the insistence on its importance. And I thought I would end, before I turn it over to the musicians, by quoting one of the most well-known and influential Sanskrit works, on musical theory. It's a very interesting text written in 1428 called the Sangita Shiromani by a Hindu convert to Islam named Sultan Malika Shahi who worked in a court of a king named Ibrahim near present-day Allahabad. He ends his text by noting the following, there is no doubt that the joy derived from music is more precious than life itself. Even animals hearing music must surrender to it. As it is the basis of the four goals of human life, ethics, wealth, pleasure, and liberation, even the great sages who seek liberation worship transcendent sound. And with that, I'll hand it over to our musicians who are going to introduce both their instruments and what they'll be playing. Thanks.
3: Thank you Judith, thank you and it was so wonderful to hear about our own culture but in such depth that almost uh, took me back to my own country. I almost felt that I was back in India. Reliving a lot of those experiences and memories that I have had since my childhood. I thought I'll start tonight's uh, presentation by playing a a composition that is credited to my Guru Pandit Kishan Maharaj which is called alap. Alap was formerly, before my guru thought of it, was something that a singer would do, or an instrument player like a sitarist or a sarod player. But it was my guru who first thought that if alap can be done on flute, on sitar, in singing, why not on tabla? So The concept of alap is, we'll go into that deeper later, is where you take something very basic and create something out of it, very meditative, And depending on where you are, what you want to play, yeah, in simple words, build from some simple notes. So I'll I'll play some a and I'll introduce my instrument and talk about my my guru and how I learned from him. And then I'll introduce my friend Rajiv and we'll follow. Thank you. can go on for an hour and th- nothing that I played was a fixed composition or f- something that I learned as a lesson this was all just taking stuff that's just lying around in my head and trying to create different layers so I can keep going I can just keep playing this for an hour for a day or for a few days so that's an example of an, an-, an- a- so I I was very, very fortunate that I learned from one of the legends, one of the father figures of this instrument. His name was Pandit Kishan Maharaj in the city of Varanasi. I didn't go to a school of music. I didn't go to a college of music. But I went and lived with him for 12 years. And that's how you learn. It's called the Guru Shishya Parampara where The student, the Shish, goes and lives with his Guru. So I spent 12 years learning from him by living with him. And something that I love to share to shock the Western world, I get a perverted pleasure in that, Mm -hmm. is that everything that I learned was by memory. We were not allowed to write anything down. So much so that most of the stuff that I learned from a fellow student by asking, him, like, oh, you know what did Guruji teach you yesterday? I wasn't there and, you know, if he's kind enough, he would say, okay, write it down most of stuff most of the lessons that I wrote down and learned I have forgotten but every single thing that I learned by memory first so 12 years of my learning is sitting here right now from the very first lesson to the last formal lesson so that's how I learned from him very fortunate uh, the way he taught me and taught me about the values of life it was not about learning this music this instrument it was like a way of life so some of my most valuable lessons were not even with my instrument. It was while working in his garden or going for a ride on his loved horse and things like that. And the way he exposed us to the world of music and musicians is a totally different, different, different subject, and that we can go on again for hours. Uh, I'll play two more short pieces. So this was something that was improvised. The other two are not. So just to give you an idea of what. Fixed compositions are, I'm very uh, tempted to play very briefly a composition since Anne talked about musicians playing in courts. So this is actually a composition that was created for Humayun. He once asked all his court musicians that I will only listen to a composition if somebody can sing or dance or play something that I've never heard before. So this composition was created originally for the father of this instrument which is which if you see an image of Lord Ganesha, the elephant-headed god, he plays that instrument, Pakhava. So this piece was written for that instrument. It's called Angustana. So you're actually hearing something from hundreds and hundreds of years back. Angusthana literally means, it comes from the word Anguli. Anguli means fingers. So this entire composition is just played with the fingers. It's the palm, you know, which is used for other compositions, it doesn't even touch it. So this piece was composed for him and played and it's called So I'll play it very briefly and then I'll end with actually something else. So so very briefly Angustana. And the incredibleness of this drum is it it literally speaks. So I'll sing out the composition for you. It's dhina gina taka taka dhina gina dhada gina dhina gina taka taka dhina gina dhada gina. So dhina gina. Taragina Tina Tata Tina Tara Gimme So Telly and the Tuck Tuck Telly and the Tarag and the Telly the Divinity School, School of Divinity, and you talked about gods and how integral it is for our culture. Uh, there were compositions written in praise of gods and goddesses. So I'll give you an example of a composition that's in praise of Lord Ganesha. Uh, Pa Shravana, Shravana is beautiful ears. Shravana Sundar, beautiful ears. Shravana, Shravana, Sundara, Sundara, Naam, Naam, Gana Pati. Gana Pati. Gyan, Naath, he the king of elephants. He the king of elephants. He is He had only one teeth because He lost the other one fighting He his the So He <laughs> IK LUMBO
4: DAR IK IK is 1, dant is 3 IK DHA KRTAK LUMBO DAR IK DUNK DHA KRTAK
3: for lunch in LA to discuss these classes because I was in LA and I said if you are free come over let's have lunch and let's discuss what we are going to do in Brandeis so we spoke the only reason I found out about him was because I was talking to a fellow musician I said you know I need some good sitar player is there anyone in this in the US who you know I I can take with me for concerts and that this was the only name that came up so I said, please ask him to send me some stuff. So thanks to YouTube, he sent me some links, which is almost a year or two years now, right? Yeah, more than a year that he sent, but you know, somehow whenever I wanted him to come play with me, he wasn't free. Some, he invited me for something. Actually, it was never working out, but it's because of Judith and her karma that she has brought us together. And I have requested him also to play an Allah. So an alap on the tabla. And alap, so he will tell you what an alap means for a sitar player and play something. And then we'll go from there and also speak about how you learned a little bit and about your instrument. Mm-hmm. Thank you.
5: Good evening everyone. Uh, so the first thing I'll be starting with is as Handibda uh, told here, it's called Allah. So this is basically an introduction towards this towards the raga which you, which you are gonna play. So I'll be playing Rag Yaman, which is an evening rag, or you can call it a melody, an evening melody. So after that we'll be playing like compositions and things. But uh, first I'll start with the alap, and then I will be talking about uh, some of the instrument, some about this instru- about this instrument. So, where it came from, its origins, and everything else. So, a up in here. This is called Sitar. Now, uh, first of all, I would like to thank uh, Judith, Sandeepa, and everyone in Brandeis to invite and to have a presentation based on uh, Vedas and how music is connected and everything. So, it's really a very good thing. Uh, All of it came from Swampeda. as you know, all the four Vedas. They are. Written for different aspects of uh, life. So, Sambad is for uh, music, Rig Veda uh, uh, is for physics, Atharva uh, Veda is for medicine, and Yajur Veda is there for chemistry. So, uh, from Sambad, and it, uh, this, this has been derived about how our Dhrupad and all these things came into existence. So, a very important instrument used to be, which was called Veena. Now, here there is a question here because uh, there is a controversy whether if the sitar came from Veena or from the Persian which is called also called Sehetar. Now as per the musicologist still that debate is going on but the thing is that sitar actually developed and evolved itself throughout these years. So it has influences from veena, of course, and also it has influences from Persian instrument as well. So the form you see is a much evolved form of veena and the lute, Setar combined. Um, so all these things you are seeing here, this sitar is basically has like three parts. So this, this part is called Tumba, which is made from gold. You know what a gold is, right? We all eat. So, <laughs> and this one is called tabli because it's like a table, right? But the bridge sets. So, this is called tabli, it's made of wood. And this, this one is called dandi or neck. So, these three parts are interlocked together and then they're glued and tied with a rope and kept for seasoning. And they're like soaked in water and kept for seasoning. And then it dries out, and that's how the sitar gets its sound from the seasoned wood, which is seasoned. So you see? So as this sitar will, like, grow, uh, as as the years pass passes by, you will see that this, the sound is more opening and the wood becomes more seasoned. So these are the tuning pegs for uh, coarse tuning. Whereas you can see these crystals and here a little swan here, these are for fine tuning. These are the frets which are movable. You can move it according to the rugs you play. And these are the sympathetic strings, which uh, play when you play the sata.
4: And
5: you need an amplification for <laughs> that, you know. So, it, it keeps on resonating itself. Also, you can use it as a percussive purpose. Like, if you play... you can play so and now it's tuned in ragam. so we'll be playing and, let me, let me so
3: before we go into the final phase which is playing together do you want to learn something that you can take back home Yes. 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 <laughs> okay so why don't I share something uh, that <coughs> you can call you, you can go home and say you know I know this about Indian music I share quickly the rhythm cycle which is called teen <laughs> you 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 learn it from us and then while we are playing you will see what you will have more fun and you can have it for the rest of your life <laughs> uh, teen is a rhythm cycle of 16 beats and i'm sure all of us can count till 16 right so 1 2 3 4 five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13. 15, 16, 1. Wow. can you do that with me, so let, let's start, go, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, you too, everyone has to do it, yes, don't be shy, don't be shy, Good. you can do it,
0: so let's, let's try counting again, 1,
3: 2, here we go, So yes, so that's why I made you do it again. There is one time that I don't clap. Can anyone tell me on which number? Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Third. No. So one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. so on the ninth, we call it Kali. So this is Kali, One, two, three, four, five. 5 6
4: 7
3: 8 9 10 11 12 13 14 15 16 Na Dhin Na Na Dhin Na Na ten, ten, Na Na Dhin Na Na Can you try it? Come on try it. 1 2 3 go Na Dhin Dhin Na Na Dhin Na Na ten, ten, Na Na Dhin Na can I hear it on your own once? Okay, one, two, three, go! Okay, play. Okay, can someone tell me which Tal? Teen, teen means three, very good. Teen means three and Tal is clap. So this rhythm cycle has three claps. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, 9 10, 11, 12, seven, seven, eight, six, one, two, three, four. So you'll remember it, teen Tal, and we'll play three short compositions. One in really slow teen Tal, then one in medium tempo, and then one in crazy tempo, okay? (laughs) I'll point out the one, the downbeat. So if you want, you can have more fun.